Welcome to Cathedral Talk, a podcast about architecture and Minecraft, where we converse to save Notre Dame. Campanological mean? Uh, campanological is the study of bells. Sequitur. So it's down to business, everyone. Uh, we have a big agenda to get through, so we can't deal with any faffing around. Zach and David have a large PowerPoint that I've assembled for them today because, in honor of our 10th episode, we are going to be talking about bells. Are we excited? I think I made a comment in one of the previous episodes that a bell and a xylophone were the same thing. So, yes. Uh, I mean, there's certainly uh, similarities, although I think what you actually mean is a bell and a glockenspiel are the same. Not a bell and a xylophone, because a xylophone is made of wood and a glockenspiel is made of metal. I was reacting to the noise that uh, you edit over us when we swear. Oh, yes, that's And true. I feel like you said that was a xylophone, but if it's a glockenspiel, then I... Uh... David has a very perplexed look. A xylophone is made of wood? That's not right. Marimbas are made of wood. Oh, marimbas and xylophones are made of wood. Xylophone made of wood. Glockenspiels are made of metal. Xylophone. Look it up. I am. There's a lot of things that are made of wood. Xylophone is one of those words that has been misapplied many, many times in common colloquial. Uh, but any huh. uh, music nerds should know what I'm talking about. But is it wrong? Is it a apps or a hemicycle? Uh-huh. <laughs> Irregardless, let's get back to what we were saying. Right. Dave, I mean, David's clearly looking this up. We have to give him a minute. I mean, I can see the light changing on his face while he Googles. <laughs> there are <laughs> there are plenty of things marketed as a xylophone that are not wood. Uh, Except it's look. OK, are, okay you, are, you, are you with corporate America or are you with the classics, David? OK, I'll give you that. The Oxford Dictionary does say wooden bars. Yep, I'll give you that. Oh, here, here's a conundrum for Tom while David's Googling. Uh, is a piano a percussion instrument or a stringed instrument? Percussion. I would say that piano is one of those transcendental instruments that can be whatever you want it to be. Nice cop out. Yeah. Is a bell a percussive instrument? Or a string instrument. Or a string instrument. Bells have been around so long that they pre-existed before the concept of Venn diagrams. Yes, Venn diagrams were suddenly <laughs> born into the world and suddenly things could be categorized. You know, I, I very well may be correct. I actually kind of want to look this up. What are older, bells or Venn diagrams? <laughs> oh, you have to look up Euler diagrams. Euler diagrams are what, you, what you're thinking of. Euler diagrams, what's that? Euler diagrams. You're a mathematician. This is going to be really embarrassing if you leave it in the podcast and don't cut it if you don't know the difference between a Venn and an Euler diagram. Look, look, Euler did a lot of things. Yeah. I don't remember everything he did. And I think that's okay. That's okay. He doesn't remember everything he did either. Probably he's dead. That's true. Mm-hmm. So Wikipedia says xylophones colloquially also refer to the metal type. Right. But if you were in an orchestra, 
You would be shamed to call a glockenspiel a xylophone. Are we in an orchestra? I guess it depends on what group you want to be with, David. Do you want to be with the common folk or do you want to be with the elitists? Common folk. 100% of the time. When you put it that way. (laughs) Anyway, why don't we get to the topic for today? So I thought, you know, I have never shared this on the podcast before, but I am, in fact, a bell ringer myself. I became a ringer at the Washington National Cathedral, I guess, about 12 years ago. And in particular, what I'm talking about is something called English-style change ringing. Change ringing is a particular form of ringing bells that involves ropes and wheels, rather simple mechanics. These bells vary in size, with weights typically from a few hundred pounds to as heavy as a few tons. A set of chain ringing bells is usually tuned to a diatonic major scale, and a full complement of bells per tower is usually 6, 8, 10, or even 12 bells. In particular, while I love being a change ringer and while I love just listening to bells in general, I also have a sort of fascination with the really big ones. Big bells that are bigger than any change ringing bells, bigger than any standard bells you'd probably see in most towers. I'm talking about the massive ones, which are called Borden bells. And what's a burden? Is it like whiskey made from corn? Borden. It's called Borden bells. Borden. Borden bells are usually the heaviest bells in a tower's collection of bells. Uh, Sometimes it's only referred to as the single heaviest bell in a tower. And sometimes it refers to maybe the couple heaviest in a tower, just kind of depending on what the setup is from one tower to the next. And I thought before we began our little tour today of some famous bells around the world that I would kind of go over the distinctions between some vocabulary with a few different kinds of bells as well as ringing. As with all things, it really depends where you're from and who you're talking to when it comes to using proper terminology. You might use one word and somebody says, yeah, that makes sense. And somebody else might say, that's incorrect. You shouldn't use that word. Like xylophone. Right. (laughs) But I wanted to make a distinction about a couple terms that apply to bells. In particular, I wanted to make a distinction between ringing bells, chiming bells, tolling bells, and pealing bells. And again, it depends very much on who you're talking to. Ringing bells probably to most people is the most sort of general word. What do you do to a bell? You ring it. If you are in Britain or any of the British Commonwealth countries, ringing a bell has a much more specific meaning. It means actually pulling on a rope that's mounted to a bell fixed to a wheel that actually spins it 360 degrees. So the bell actually rotates all the way upside down on one end to upside down on the other end. And probably most people who aren't too familiar with the minutiae regarding bells aren't particularly aware of how different bells swing in very different ways depending on how they're mounted. On the other hand, chimes are often associated with clock towers. The word chiming bells doesn't mean that the bell is in any kind of motion usually. Chiming bells just means that the bell is hung dead and being struck by a hammer or a mallet. I'm guessing ringing the bell has to do with the circular motion that you're putting the bell through, a ring, mm-hmm. right? 360 degrees. And then there's chiming the bell. Oh, what were the other ones? So then there's tolling the bells. For thee. And then peeling bells. Wait, sorry. Before before you go to those, does ringing really mean because it's a ring, it's a circle? You're making a circle with the bell? You know, I've actually never thought of that before. Huh. I wonder if that's coincidence. Yeah. 
There were two more words I used, tolling bells. And tolling is the word I think we'll use the most often today because we're going to be focusing on my favorite kind of bells, Borden bells. Tolling usually refers to just ringing a bell at a very steady rhythm. Most often it means the bell is swinging, but it doesn't have to. It could also still be hit by a mallet for uh, some kind of chiming mechanism. But the idea of tolling is just that the bell is being sounded at very regular intervals. The bell tolls for thee, quite often for like funerals or uh, some kind of procession where you're having some kind of memorial service. And then probably the most confusing word of all are peeling bells. And this word again gets used and adopted in many ways, depending on where you're from. If you are from, again, Britain or the Commonwealth, a peal of bells or to peal bells or to ring a peal has a very specific definition. It is it's to remove the rind. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Are you going to take every opportunity to derail me this episode? Is that how this is going to work? I think the idea was that we didn't want like an hour and a half of uninterrupted Tom yes. talking about vocabulary. Yes. So David and I oh, are... I, I'm well aware, Ed, fire away, but I also have to rebuttal every time you say something, so... That's fine. Um... <laughs> you were saying that when you get a whole bunch of cars like out on the strip and they accelerate really quickly, their engines make a specific frequency that's mathematically attuned to one another. And that's what's called peeling out. That was a long journey to get there. I didn't know where we were going. Actually, I'm not even sure I got it. Do I know this term, peeling out in a car? Is that a thing? Yes, you do. You're lying. You're you're no. trying to affect like a, a good guy persona. You know what peeling out is. You've done donuts. I've seen you. <laughs> Wait, that that's that's what that is? Doing a donut in a car that's peeling out? No. No. What is it then? I don't know. I swear. Well, I don't want to anger the the racing community that listens to our podcast, so I would get the definition wrong because I'm not a member of that community. But in my head, I conceive of it as accelerating in the car fast enough that your tires slip. Purposefully. Purposefully. And then the traction grabs and then you're able to to actually accelerate out. I didn't know that. I heard the term. I didn't know that. I mean, I, I've definitely heard, you know, many bros in high school go, hey, man, I'm going to do some donuts this weekend, you know, but I'd never actually heard the term peeling out before. That's going to Krispy Kreme, though. Did you have Krispy Kreme up in upstate New York? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's always at the gas stations. I mean, begrudgingly, I, I'm not a fan of Krispy Kreme, but uh, yes, they, we do have them. What's your favorite donut? Dunkin' Donuts? I like old-fashioned caked donuts. Oh. And that's like the antithesis of Krispy Kreme, which are just puffs of air. I eat a donut, and it takes more energy for me to consume the donut than energy I gain from it. It's because he has an extremely odd metabolism. I do. And so I eat a donut, and I'm emptier by the end than I was when I began. Well, those lacrosse players were saying that they were going to do donuts so they could replenish the calories from a hard day of godly exercise out on the field. I don't know how lacrosse got into this. Are you making another connection that I'm unaware of? No, Tom Tom was saying that those bros in high school were talking about doing donuts, and I was saying that they were regulating their calorie intake based off of their, uh, their exercise regimen. I think it says something about you that you hear the word bro, and the first thing you come up with is lacrosse. <laughs> I don't know what it says about you but I think it says something. Yeah, I, I, that's definitely not the first sport I go to for bros. I have to pick one. It's very New England elitist sport. No, it isn't. It's it's a like ancient 
Like, well, yeah, uh, okay. Indigenous Historically, Canadian sport. Not what it is in America today. Well, you know, maybe your upstate New York educations weren't elitist enough to tell you where lacrosse actually came from. I mean, we had lacrosse at our school. Anyway, peeling, peeling bells. Peeling. The word peel is defined as a few different verbs and nouns. Most generally, for bells to peel can mean for bells to simply ring loudly, usually by swinging in motion. For change ringers, however, to ring a peel means to ring bells in ever-changing sequences so that the orders or permutations of the bells never repeat. We'll talk about that in greater detail some other time ad nauseum. But the physical tower is often said to contain a peal of bells, or even more confusingly, a ring of bells. And even outside the Commonwealth, it's customary to refer to many great towers of bells as having a peal of bells, even if they're not hung like change-ringing bells. The British haven't yet quite managed to monopolize the word yet, much to their chagrin. It is confusing how we use the word peel both as a noun and as a verb. It's, it is quite confusing. And so, in honor of our 10th episode for Cathedral Talk today, I thought we'd have a good old-fashioned top 10 list. This is Tom's top 10 list of the world's best Borden Bells. And before we get to this, you keep not leaving room for me to be insulted by your continual use of the first person singular. Sorry. Do you want to chime in and tell them that you're a ringer too? Ha, chime. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tom dragooned me just like he dragooned me into doing this podcast with him. I don't he think also, that's quite how that worked. He, he you also said I was interested in coming one time. He also dragooned me into being a bell ringer with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am significantly younger than him, so I will always have fewer years of experience than he does. It's just how it works. I may not have been as regular during the pandemic as you have been. but I feel like you have examples of dragooning, which you've actually appreciated. What? 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 You said you Tom dragooned you into doing bell ringing, and you you like bell ringing, as far as I can tell. Yeah, but it's more fun to make to poke fun of Tom. And Tom dragooned you into doing this podcast, but you know now I've locked you into a conversational trap where you have to admit that you enjoy it. <laughs> I don't have to. I can keep playing the character of David the curmudgeon. Just let him carry on, audience. He feels better this way. <laughs> That's true. I'll agree with that. Yeah. All right, so David and Zach, uh, just a couple notes about how this spreadsheet works. It's not a spreadsheet. Oh, sorry, not right. But first of all, <laughs> you love spreadsheets this... so much that you think even PowerPoints are spreadsheets. <laughs> you know, it's probably true. <laughs> so, for the first entry on our top ten list of Tom's most loved Borden Bells in the world. Do you have your PowerPoint in front of you? Now I can't hear any of you. I'm just hearing this totem glock. Can you not hear me at all? Or is it just that it's so loud? It's just so loud. You have a full minute of totem glock. I am not listening to this whole thing. Number 10. At Strasbourg Cathedral, France, cast in 1427 at the Hans Gremp foundry, with a pitch of G-sharp for its striking tone, and a mass of 8,900 kilograms, and a diameter of 2.22 meters, Tottenglock translates as the death bell, as this bell was originally used for mourning functions. But in 1519, when a new larger bell was cast with a diameter of 2.74 meters, it cracked shortly after installation. And with few options left, the Tottenglock was then reassigned as the principal borden of Strasbourg Cathedral. Tom, you're not reading what you wrote. I bet I can give it a little bit more flair. <clears throat> oh boy. 
So the Tan Glock translates as the death bell, as this bell was originally used for crushing people with. <laughs> but in 1519, when a new larger bell was created, it was better at crushing people. And this one was brought up into the bell tower to ring for morning functions. And then after the bigger one, which is not named here, cracked after crushing a whole bunch of people, they retired that one. And it, that one, I believe, is the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Uh, and the Tottenglock is now the principal bourbon of Strasbourg's cathedral. You really want to say bourbon, don't you? That was really confusing to listen to since like... 85% of that was right. Eight, that's really generous, 85%? I mean, it started as 85. It became 60% by the end. All right. Um, this is going to take some finagling on my end. But the way I'm going to do this for the audience is I'm going to play the sound of the bell first, and then we'll say what the bell is. That way, anybody who's really into it can listen first and if they are familiar with any of these bells, then see if they can identify which bell it might be. Is there anyone in the world that can do this? I mean, one of them is recording with us. I I bet that if we were to play for Tom a random bell on this list, there is a less than 100% chance that he will get that bell correct. Less that's that's not a tough bar. Less than 100% chance. Of course there's less than 100% chance. He's allowed errors. I mean, if you played one of these bells on this list for me right now, I'll tell you right now there's a 100% chance I'll get it right. But if you played a list of every bell I've ever listened to in the last year, I'd probably have a harder time. Yes. I don't know about that. I mean, maybe the way we should be structuring this is we play, we, we pick one of these at random, play it, see if Tom gets it right, and then <laughs> t- tell the audience what it was. Yeah, you have subjected us to your games for so long. Yeah, kind of like this, this idea. Is, yeah, time to put Jigsaw into one of his own games. Well... Next time, next time, you guys are welcome to come up with your own games and play your games on me. Uh, but I put too much work into this PowerPoint to change it up now. So, sorry. So, Tottenglock is a relatively small Borden as far as this list is concerned. Don't get me wrong, it's 8.7 Imperial tons, which is plenty large. But um, this bell is not as big as what was intended for Strasbourg Cathedral. I think you're going to find, as you go down this list, there are many, many anecdotes of these bells being the sort of replacement of something that was destroyed as their predecessor. In this case, though, it sounds like that Strasbourg Cathedral just didn't have the money to try to recreate their original large Borden bell after it cracked. So instead, they had to just resort to using this older bell that had been cast a while back that was originally intended for that funerary function. Are bells, if kept right and natural disasters are averted, are they forever? Or do they wear and tear through use? I was actually thinking of this earlier today. And I, 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 I'm, again, I'm, of course, no bell manufacturing expert. But from all the reading I've done, I think that you can basically say a good bell lasts forever and a bad bell lasts about 36 hours. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So, so you have strong opinions about the Liberty Bell. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the oldest bell on this list is, but it's only a couple hundred years. I can't imagine there's a bell on this list that's more than a thousand years old. No, and what you're looking at right now on this list is actually, it is, this is the oldest bell on this list too, 1427. 
Uh, and that's pretty old, you know, that's, that's just at the, you know, transition of the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, you know, this is an old bell. And it still sounds pretty good. Um, I think in particular what's just impressive about Strasbourg Cathedral in general is just the exceptionally large and quite elegant sounding collection of bells it has. And this is the lowest one of that cathedral. I have, this is one of the bells that I have not listened to in person. Uh, David, I don't know. Have you, did you hear any of the bells in person when you were there? Yeah, I did hear Strasbourg's. Um, I think mm-hmm. I, t- yeah, I took a recording and sent it to you. I remember that. And you got very excited. Yeah. I have to look that up again. I forget precisely what you would have listened to. You may have heard this one. I, I don't know. I, I did a walk around the cathedral from all angles as it was going from 15 minutes or so. All right. And here comes bell number nine. Cast in 1927 at the John Taylor and Company Bell Foundry, with a pitch of E-flat, a mass of 11,000 kilograms and a diameter of 2.38 meters, Great Peter uses a counterbalanced clapper to regulate the speed of its tolling as it swings, making it sound with steady, even strokes. Counterbalanced clappers are an innovation that are largely particular to the British Isles and are generally not found on too many continental boards throughout Europe. Great Peter is rung by hand with a rope, and it is the largest manually swung bell in the British Isles. Or is it? We'll see in a moment later. Great Peter at Yorkminster, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe this is yet another bell that I've been to that you haven't. Have you been to York? I've been to York. Oh, wow. I'd forgotten you had been to York. Good for you. Yeah, no, that was my big um, Yorkshire spring break uh, where I... uh, toured the countryside of all creatures great and small oh that's right gotta go to york as part of that okay i i forgot that it also included an actual trip to york itself yep. so yeah well that makes sense stayed in a hostel well that's what we do at that age and in europe there's a lot more hostels in europe it's true i had never really heard of hostels till i went to europe stayed in a dc hostel it was disturbing anyway what a counterbalance clapper does is there's a separate weight that's sort of housed towards the top of the bell that you can't see. But what it does is it actually sort of delays the motion of the clapper as the bell swings. And so the clapper barely moves until it actually finally gets slammed against the side of the bell. And it just sort of perfectly times that clapper so that you get a nice, even, consistent tolling, which is one of our words for today. Does it change the tone at all or just the timing? So it's mostly the timing. When we listen to some recordings later, you'll find that without a counterbalance clapper, you will have bells that will go like dung, 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 mm-hmm. dung. There'll be, you know, it depending on just at what point that clapper happens to actually make contact. Do you have a preference between the two? Because I think I'm more partial to the randomness. Yeah, you know, I, I like them both. And whenever I do hear a counterbalanced Borden like this one, I instantly think, oh, Britain bells. And that sort of has a spe- special place in my heart. But like you said, I also kind of do like the somewhat unpredictability as well. It makes it a little bit more exciting, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, because it's kind of like, ooh, that was a good one. Or, you know, like, ooh, let's see if we get another good one here. Whereas this one is just like, oh, yep, everyone's the same. So, you know, yeah, that's a good point. Great Peter is boasted to be the heaviest bell in Britain that is still rung by hand with a rope. And that 
may be true, but there might be a counterexample to that coming up soon. So we will put that on the back burner for now. Number eight. Number eight. Riverside Borden at the Riverside Church in New York City, cast in 1928 by the Gillotin Johnson Bell Foundry, with a pitch of C, a mass of 18,600 kilograms, and a diameter of 3.1 meters, this is the Borden of the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Memorial Carolyn in the Riverside Church, which should not be confused with the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Memorial Carolyn in the Rockefeller Chapel of the University of Chicago. Rockefeller really liked dedicating Carolyns to his mom. This New York Carolyn has the largest collection of bells in the world until 1960. The Carolyn is still the heaviest in the world, with a net weight of 230,000 kilograms. This Borden both swings and chimes, which is rare for Carolyns. The Borden is said to be the largest harmonically tuned bell in the world, however this prize may likely be out of date as larger bells like the Olympic bell also now claim this. Well, I don't mean to trash my own country, but I don't like that as much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that half of your footnote for this bell is talking about how awesome the Notre Dame bell is. <laughs> like, yeah. I would say maybe a third of the footnote actually has anything to do with this bell. Sorry, Mom, that I haven't been naming Carolyn's after you. <laughs> maybe I can find a Wikipedia page that I can name after you. I think this is the first instance of Carolyn popping up in any of our episodes, let alone this one. That's true. We didn't really talk about what a Carolyn is versus the other things yet. More terms, more terms. <laughs> we talked about what chimes were already, where again, if you have like a clock tower and you have a small collection of bells, I forget the exact number, that can be considered a chime. But if you have up to, I'm just pulling this number out of nowhere, but I want to say something on the order of maybe like 23 bells, that at a certain threshold, you are considered a Carolyn. Much like a chime, all the bells in a carolin are almost always hung dead. They don't move. They're hung fixed and they are struck with mallets, which are then mechanically connected to a keyboard for the caroliner to then play tunes on. Since the bells aren't, you know, oscillating to some sort of gravitational frequency, that means that you can play tunes. But at the same time, arguably, the sound you get from bells that are hung dead isn't quite as grand as when bells truly swing. Trade the melody for the grandness. Yes. To expound further on my initial reaction of not liking it uh, as much, I found you were speaking about how all the harmonics stack up and there's different ways to do it. I found in this one the harmonics kind of clashed. Uh, it didn't feel like they were all working together. It felt mm -hmm. like some were, there was some dissonance there. I would say that I definitely agree. There's a reason that this one is not higher up my list. You know, it's definitely not in my top five. I included it in my top 10 because, again, this is a subjective list and I pick things that I feel some emotional attachment to in addition to thinking that they have aesthetic qualities. Um, I have heard recordings of this one for various things, recordings of bells that I do particularly like. Um, but also, um, one of the things which I haven't mentioned about our recordings yet that we're playing for our audience is that our recordings are not a single recording of the bell. I spent a good bit of time before we started recording our podcast today of collecting different samples of sounds of these bells, both when you're very close to them in the tower, as well as when you're on the ground or listening to them from the distance. 
And I tried to blend them together as much as possible because bells are a very unique experience that are very difficult to capture just through microphones. And bells sound very different depending on where you are, whether you're up close or far away. And so my goal was to give you a nice breadth of what these things sound like. And I admit for this particular recording, I wasn't able to find as many good recordings of it from many different positions. So in that way, I don't think I've done quite justice to how good this thing sounds. You also wanted to show off. I also wanted to show off. This one was cast in 1928, so perhaps for quite a long time, this did hold the record as being the world's largest tuned bell. My question is, what is an untuned bell? Yeah, sort of like, even in your footnotes, you are talking about casting the bell to have a tone and then tuning the bell after it is cast. But it's not like those casted bells that have a tone are not tuned. They're just tuned in the casting. There are different philosophies on the best way to manufacture a bell. In Britain, there's sort of two steps to the manufacturing process for these bells. You first have the casting where you pour all the molten bronze into the mold that makes the basic shape of the bell. And you've already spent much time trying to optimize the shape of that mold to get you some close approximation to what note or what pitch you really want for that bell. But at the same time, there's always little bits of incremental adjustments you can make depending on is there a little bit more material of metal here, a little bit less there. So as a next step for many bell foundries, they have the tuning process. And the tuning process involves slowly scraping away metal from the inside of that bell to adjust the harmonics a little bit here and there. Now, I'm not a harmonicist, uh, <laughs> if that's the right word. I'm, I'm not somebody who knows all the mathematical intricacies of how that tuning works. But like I said, these bells have many overtones. And overtones are just, you know, hearing many different notes at the same time whenever the instrument sounds. Uh, and it's not unique to bells if you play a piano note very loudly. If you listen very closely, you can actually hear more than one note from the different resonant frequencies come out of that piano note. And it's just bells amplify overtones drastically. But like you said, there are other bell foundries that maybe do this tuning process a little bit differently. For example, I mentioned here the Royal Icebouts Foundry, which is in the Netherlands. They recently cast a smaller uh, Borden bell for Notre Dame. Its name is Marie. And they didn't go through the same tuning process that I talked about there that they use in Britain. Instead, they tried to use computer modeling and, you know, the latest technology to really truly map out the best possible contours of what that bell should sound like for the casting itself. I don't think they went to the same kind of scraping rigor that I talked about for those other bells, but they might argue that it's unnecessary. And you're speaking of Netherlands, do I see, are they the same ones who cast bell number seven? On to bell number seven. Kirk Borden at Dordrecht Minster in the Netherlands, cast in 1999 by the Royal Icebouts Bell Foundry with a pitch of E, a mass of 9,830 kilograms, and a diameter of 2.52 meters. This Borden is part of a carolin that was originally installed in 1966. 
and was subsequently augmented over time. This is the largest swinging bell in the Netherlands, and it could be rung by hand with ropes or with motors. The Grote Kirk, or the Church of Our Lady, rests adjacent to a large Oud Maas distributary where boating is common, and hence the acoustics of the carillon can be appreciated from upon the surface of the water. That one's nicer. I do like this one. And it was a fairly recent board and cast in 1999. You can actually go boating and listen to the bell on the water. And I think as maybe you've experienced before when you listen to certain sounds or acoustics on like a pond or a river or, you know, some I guess like a peaceful lake, uh, it really has a very different effect on the sort of acoustical experience. And this is definitely something I would like to do in, uh, in one of my future trips. Well, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, how would you describe what happens when you go boating and you, you, you like listen to like music or fireworks or something? I mean, I know your in-laws do a lot of time on boating, so I think you might have had experiences that I have not had. Oh, I guess that's true. How much boating have you guys done? Have you not? When was the last time you guys were on boats? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I thought you would like at least have some memory of boats. I don't All remember right. the last time I was on a boat. I know uh, I have some friends who live near the Hudson. And so I've seen the fireworks on the Hudson, which was pleasant. But I feel like more of the acoustic experience was those, I think they're the Rockefeller cliffs uh, that are on the Hudson. And those have a much more dramatic impact on the sound than I thought the water did. I can't articulate what the water did to the sound because I don't think I was conscious of it. Oh, yeah? Okay. That's not something I'd thought of particularly either. Well, what what about this experience? Have you ever listened to sound in like a large field of snow? It's a lot uh, damped. Like, I think when we're talking about appropriate acoustics for recording in, where we've talked about like sound dampening panels for the room, like carpets and shades and pillows and stuff like that and snow has a very similar effect that it, it dampens the sound or at least for me maybe it's a different experience for you i've had different experiences where i thought that sometimes you could have a sort of ricocheting effect of sound that sort of almost feels like it's bouncing off the surface kind of like a pebble on a pond but in snow or in water uh, well snow and water actually water i could believe snow surprises me I mean, again, you can have very different kinds of snow. You can have very packed snow and you can have very um, fluffy snow. I would say my snow experiences have been very muted and very quiet. It's very peaceful and tranquil being out in, yeah. like if you're doing a, a hike in the snow or like um, snowshoeing out in the snow out here, it's a very, it's a very peaceful, solitary experience. Yeah. My auditory sense of that is like heavy. Everything sounds heavy. All right, number six. Hey, more places I've been that you haven't been. I know. You're on a roll. Let's have a listen. Pumarin at St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, cast in 1951 by the Carl Geitz Bell Foundry, with a pitch of C, a mass of 20,132 kilograms, and a diameter of 3.14 meters, the present-day Pumarin was cast from the metal of its predecessor, the original 1705 Pumarin Borden, that had a mass of 10,400 kilograms, which was destroyed in World War II. Fire caused by wartime looters of nearby shops destroyed the predecessor when its wooden cradle burned through and the bell crashed onto the stone floor of the Southwest Tower on April 12, 1945. 
So more than the the water that we would listen to bell number seven on, do you feel like the materials of the bell tower and the materials of the church also play a role in how these bells sound? Well, definitely the construction of the tower has a big effect. Um, what the louvers for what the sound is supposed to escape from, but also just like at what depth the bell rests inside the tower. Uh, Is the bell really high up or is it sort of deep in the well and the sound is going up and out? I remember in Westminster Abbey in particular, there's a story about how at one point the set of chain ringing bells had been reinstalled at a different height in the tower. I forget if it was higher or lower, but once they did that, it had a uh, adverse effect on the sound as it tried to escape the tower. To counteract the negative effect, what they did was they built an inverted pyramid at the top of the ceiling of the tower. And that inverted pyramid basically deflected the sound as it went up to the top of the tower and out the four walls on each side. So there's all sorts of weird witchcraft that can be done to improve how that sound, yeah, escapes. So this Pummerin bell? Yeah, it's either Pummerin or Pummerin. At St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna. Mm -hmm. The building itself looks like the bell tower is in stone, which is a common building material. But the previous one at Dorktrek looked like it was clay brick. Uh, even though the interior both looks like it, the the tower itself is wood. And you're talking about the interior of what you're looking that the bell is mounted to? So the what the bell is mounted to, it looks like in most of these, is either steel or wood. Yeah. But the building itself that houses the tower is made out of either stone, in this case of St. Stephen's, mm-hmm. or uh, clay brick in terms of Dortrek. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what Dordrecht is made out of. It's it's a little hard to tell. Um, I, I It might be stone. It also might be a combination of stone and brick. St. Stephen's is definitely more traditionally Gothic cathedral, so definitely a lot of stone there. Uh, interestingly, it's two bell towers sort of flank its sides rather than sort of sitting in front at the facade, so that's quite different than what we might be used to with Notre Dame and a lot of the French and English cathedrals. But also mentioning the frame itself, Um, A lot of times you've got these bell frames or belfries, like you said, made of wood or even in this case, like steel. That's usually quite isolated from being directly connected to the tower itself. They're usually built to twist and um, bend a little bit so that you're not directly twisting and bending the walls of the tower itself. Uh, The bell frame at Notre Dame, which is wood sits on a very low platform that lets the entire wooden bell frame sort of swing back and forth without actually directly pulling the tower with it. And, uh, I mean, it's going to depend one architectural job to the next. Generally speaking, it's bad news if, you know, you allow your tower to oscillate too much. So this this picture looks like the frame in which the bell is mounted is a steel frame, but I gather that the belfry isn't all steel or wasn't all steel. Well, uh, for a lot of these bells that have been built to replace an older one that got destroyed, you often find them using more modern materials like a steel frame rather than a wooden one. When a bell is completely destroyed by falling, does it split in half? Uh, We're about to see some interesting pictures. Yeah, moving on. So we're halfway through our list right now. And before we moved on to the end, I thought I would have just a couple dishonorable mentions. 
because David, you were asking earlier, well, what about some bells that you really dislike? And so I thought I'd run through a few that I really dislike right now. So our first dishonorable mention for Bordens that I am not such a fan of. Savoyard at the Basilica Sacré-Cœur in Paris, France, with a pitch of C-sharp, a mass of 18,835 kilograms, a diameter of 3.03 meters, this is the largest bell in France, and in my opinion it sounds dreadful. Not only is this bell rather industrial sounding without any clear harmonics, but is out of tune with the other tower bells at the Sacré-Cœur, making this one of the most unattractive peals in France. Unlike most French churches, the Sacré-Cœur's bell tower stands at the rear of the church behind the rest of the structure, rather than in the front with the facade. I don't know, It's it sounded bell-ish to me. It sounds like a glorified weed whacker. I'm confused exactly what you don't like about the bell. I don't find it to be as industrial. Uh, I do get the point that it doesn't sound super great when contrasted with the other bells. Is it a common thing to only ring the Borden? Because some of the other recordings we were listening to only had the Borden. And I don't know how the other Bordens that we were listening to sound with their accompanying bells. That's a good point. I should have brought this up earlier. Um, I tried to find exclusive recordings of just the Bordens for these various towers. For the most part, I didn't want us to judge the Bordens based on the other bells they ring with at their tower. Nevertheless, the bells at the Sacré-Cœur were just so awful that I couldn't help but bring it up. As to why the La Savoyade is so awful in my ear, um, I mean, in all seriousness, it does have a just terrible whining sound to it. There's something about the harmonics that are just discordant. So I agree with Zach. When I first heard just the Borden bell, it actually sounded fine to me. I didn't I didn't pick up on it sounding particularly industrial, at least compared to some of the other ones that we listened to. But I do agree with you, once the other bells came in, it then it did not sound good. But because I had already gotten used to the Borden bell and decided that was fine, I had more of an issue with the other bells. I guess it's just a, a frame of reference of what you're hearing first. Dishonorable mention number two. The Olympic bell for the 2012 London Olympics. Cast in 2012 as a joint venture by the Whitechapel and Royal Icebouts Bell Foundries, with a pitch of B, a mass of 22,900 kilograms, and a diameter of 3.3 meters, this bell was designed by the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, but cast by the Royal Icebouts Foundry in the Netherlands, since Whitechapel did not have a sufficiently large facility to cast such an immense bell. Much contention arose over whether it was appropriate to call this a British bell, since it was not cast in Britain. It was rung during the opening ceremony, however the engineers did a poor job broadcasting its sound. And it is the opinion of this campanologist that it was a dire mistake to hang the bell fixed only to be struck with a mallet, rather than to allow it to freely swing as it told, which would have been a far more impressive spectacle and acoustical experience. It's too bad that this is our first reference of Whitechapel Bell Foundry in this episode so far, which Tom and I were fortunate enough to visit shortly before it closed. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we took the tour there and it's a wonderful place to visit, or at least it was a wonderful place to visit. And I think there's still some ongoing disputes over to what the final outcome of that facility is going to be. 
And that's the foundry that forged our bells for the the National Cathedral, right? That's true, yeah. For the bells at the Washington National Cathedral, we have Whitechapel bells. They're wonderful bells. Uh, Whitechapel is an excellent bell foundry. They just unfortunately didn't have a large enough facility to cast the Olympic bell. The other competing British bell foundry with Whitechapel, at least for the longest time, was the Taylor Bell Foundry. And I always wondered, I wonder if it would have been possible for them to do some kind of collaborative project where Whitechapel designs it and then sends the, you know, specs to the Taylor company and then the Taylor company could actually make it at their facility. You know, that could, it could be like a joint operation. That's like Pepsi sending their recipe to Coca-Cola. That can't happen. But I don't know what's worse, right? Having that or having the Netherlands make it right for a British bell. The answer was that nobody would seem to be especially happy at the end of this tragic endeavor. And then we have dishonorable mention number three, the Tsar Kolokol in the Kremlin at Moscow, Russia. Cast between 1733 and 1735 by the Mikhail Motorin Bell Foundry, the pitch is unknown or really not existent. The mass is 198,000 kilograms and the diameter is 6.82 meters. This behemoth is the Tsar Bell, which is not to be confused with the Tsar Bomba, the world's largest hydrogen bomb. The scale of this bell borders upon absurdity, with a mass that is eight times larger than the heaviest bell on this top ten list. The Tsar Kolokol has never been rung. It broke in a citywide fire before it was removed from its casting pit, with a substantial piece of the rim breaking off entirely. It rests there for a century before being hoisted out and placed on a pedestal in the Kremlin near the bell tower of Ivan the Great, where it still remains today. It had been cast to replace the bell of the same name, which was also destroyed by fire in 1704. Um, you are making a comparison between this bell and a nuclear bomb. I didn't realize that's what you were referencing. I don't even understand what's happening. Do you not know what the Tsar Bomba is? You don't know what the Tsar Bomba is? Did I not just say it is the largest well, nuclear like, bomb? I figured it out, but I've never heard that term before. Really? It's the world's largest thermonuclear device. The Russians don't like to do anything small. That goes for both nuclear weapons as well as their Borden Bells. It is still on the ground in Kremlin Square today, so you can go see it. Whether it counts as a bell if it's never made sound before, I think that's up for debate. Is it? It seems like a bell to me. You know, if a tree falls in a forest but nobody hears it, does it make sound? I mean, yes. It's still a tree. Yeah, it's also still a tree, <laughs> to David's point. If a bell has never been rung, is it still a bell? Well, I mean, you just said it, it's a bell. That was, that was the beginning. <laughs> if a bell. Then yes, it's a bell. It's very pretty, and I think it deserves to be shown off. And I think the fact that there is some wear on the, the piece. <laughs> somewhere. There's a whole side missing, but yes, it's got somewhere. That, that piece that's missing has wear on it from people touching it. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I think that's... It's nice that it's not interactive because the bell doesn't do anything back to you, but that you can still engage with the bell in some manner, even if it's not listening to it. So it looks very pretty. Back to the actual top 10 list, number five. Have a listen. Big Ben. 
at the Elizabeth Clock Tower, at the Palace of Westminster, or the Houses of Parliament. Cast by the George Mears and Company or Whitechapel Bell Foundry in 1858 with a pitch of F-ish. The mass is 13,800 kilograms and the diameter is 2.74 meters. Big Ben is the only Borden to make it onto this list that is stationary or hung dead. For it chimes when it is struck with a hammer rather than tolling with a clapper via swinging. During the construction of Parliament's renowned clock tower in 1856, the foundry John Warner and Sons cast an even larger Borden to be used as the clock's hour bell. This predecessor to the present day Big Ben was also named Big Ben, but before it could be installed, it cracked beyond repair. And today's iteration was cast at Whitechapel as its replacement shortly after. Now that was interesting because I absolutely don't have as good of an ear as you do for recognizing these, and by which I mean I have no ear for recognizing these bells. Uh, however, I knew what this was before I clicked on it, and based on the pictures, it wasn't a surprise for me. But in hearing it, I still think like, oh, that one I might have been able to actually pick out because I very much associate that sound with New Year's Eve. Uh, I hear that sound and then I see fireworks. Mm -hmm. Big Ben. It's, I, I think, probably the most recognizable sound of Bell in the world. I mean, BBC uses it, right, for, I think, a lot of their broadcasting. So, you know, it's a, it's a bell that uh, is just probably the most famous of bells. This is a Whitechapel bell, Woo. Big Ben. With a success story. This is a success story, exactly. Well, almost. Whitechapel did everything right. But unfortunately, when the... Uh, let me get this word right. The horologist. The horologist, yes. Do you know what a horologist is? No. I had to look this up. It's somebody who specializes in... Horoscopes. In clockwork mechanics. Never would have guessed that. But it's somebody who uh, specializes in clocks and keeping time. Anyway, when the horologist installed the bell, he ignored the specifications from Whitechapel and he decided to use a hammer that was way bigger than they was supposed to use to strike it for the hour. He also ended up cracking this one too, since they had already ruined the first one. But what they ended up doing with the current Big Ben here is rather than just, you know, start over again, they actually cut the crack out of the bell entirely. If you look at the picture at the bottom here, do you see how there's actually a square cut into the side of the bell? Yeah. That's actually where the crack was when the oversized hammer cracked it early in its life. If they didn't just cut out the crack, then that crack could easily keep splitting up the side of the bell uh, and the bell would have been ruined very quickly. And then they, of course, rotated the bell a quarter turn so that the new hammer wouldn't strike it in the same spot. But as with all things here, you know, since you've removed a part of your bell, the sound of the bell is not as optimal as it was intended. And so it's supposed to be, I think, an F, but it's sort of a... Actually, David, tell me this. Is there such thing as F flat? Uh, F flat is E. Right. So you would never say F flat? Nope. Right. So... It's not F flat, but it's um, like slightly less than F. So you might notice here it says sort of F minus, which I think is indicating that it's not quite an F, but it's a little out of tune. Don't tune your piano to it. And yet it has produced one of the most iconic bell sounds that we all know. You can tune your fish to it. All right, bell number four, have a listen.
Great Paul at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Cast in 1881 by the John Taylor and Company Bell Foundry with a pitch of E-flat and a mast of 17,001 kilograms? I'll have to check that. And a diameter of 2.9 meters. Great Paul was the largest bell in the UK until the Olympic bell was cast in 2012. Ten years after installation, Great Paul was rehung in 1891 with another counterbalanced clapper for slow, steady tolling. This Borden is notorious for having mechanical difficulties. In the 1970s, its one-ton clapper fell out, crashing through the clock mechanism below, destroying 30,000 pounds of equipment. The clapper broke again 15 years later, causing less destruction thanks to a reinforced barrier to protect the clock, yet nerves were rattled once again. What's with that extra one kilogram? Yeah, I was wondering if you had noticed that, and of course the answer is yes. I found somewhere in the specifications, they had quite explicitly stated that this bell was 17,001 kilograms heavy. And I'm like, I don't believe you for an instant, but that's fantastic, so I'll just go with it. And here's yet another bell that I've been to. I like how this podcast is making me seem like such a, a world traveler, though. You are such like a, there's a word for that. Is it cosmopolitan? There you go. Yeah. However, this is because it's all highly European based. I don't think you would have actually heard this bell. Well, that was what I was going to get to. You're, it looks like I've been here, but I didn't realize that I apparently have never heard this bell in person before. Yeah. This bell is one of my favorites. It's got a lovely sound to it. However, it has been fraught with much equipment failure over its lifetime. And then in the last decade or so, maybe even longer, I think, the chiming mechanism for Great Paul has been broken. And I've, I've read in several places, they say it's the chiming mechanism that's broken, but it's not entirely clear to me if they actually meant the mechanism that swings the bell and makes it tilt back and forth, because I think that's probably what they're referring to, that they don't have motors right now that can actually make this thing go back and forth. It may very well be mounted to a chiming mechanism that can just strike it on the side like Big Ben, but either way, it hasn't sounded for a very long time until... Just a month ago, at the end of July 2021, to commemorate uh, a turning point in the pandemic, they hosted the London Festival of Bells this year. And the mechanism is still broken for this bell. They couldn't uh, have it repaired in time. But they did have it rigged so that several chaps could use ropes to pull this thing and actually make it sound manually. So when I said earlier that Great Peter's claim to fame was that it could be rung by hand with a rope and it was the largest in Britain to be able to do so, I don't think that's actually technically true because Great Paul can actually be done so and Great Paul is considerably bigger than Great Peter. You use the term multiple chaps, though. Is that implying that it takes more than one person to pull that rope? I think so, yes. I, I saw some videos online and there was at least two, maybe more people that were pulling it slowly back and forth. So I have seen that it only takes one person to ring Great Peter at Yorkminster. So maybe their claim to fame is uh, it's the largest bell that can be rung by one person, whereas uh, Great Paul takes more than one. So that could be a clear distinction. All right. So on to bell number three. Have a listen. Thank you. 
Peter's Glock at Cologne Cathedral in Germany. Cast in 1923 by the Heinrich R.K. Ulrich Bell Foundry, with a pitch slightly under C and a mass of 24,200 kilograms and a diameter of 3.22 meters, St. Peter's Glock, or St. Peter's Bell, was the largest ringable, freely swinging bell in the world. That is, horizontally beam-mounted rather than nestled in some kind of curved headstock like Great Paul. It was only recently dethroned by the slightly larger Big Bell of the People's Salvation Cathedral in Bucharest, which was cast in 2016, at a mass that's slightly heavier at 25,000 kilograms. Peter's Glock has also suffered from cracks and broken clappers in its lifetime, but it has been repaired and it continues to thrive. The Borden has an exceptionally low strike tone, one that is even lower than its new rival in Bucharest. It's big. It's a big bell. It's a big bell. Yeah. It's the big bell of Cologne Cathedral, or in German also known as... Oh, Kern. thought we were talking... I was looking... You guys are really paying attention to me tonight. Okay, yep. I would th- I was looking for other words. I thought we were talking about St. Peter's Glock, which says in German. Isn't it? I think in German it's Kernerdom. I don't know about that part. I just know Kern. Kernerdom. I. Why don't you go wake up your wife, David, and ask her what they call Cologne Cathedral in German? Yeah, we're recording this late. So this is the largest bell on this list, hands down. There is no bell on this list that's heavier than this one, other than the Czar Bell. It, in fact, did replace an even bigger bell that used to be in its place called the Kaiser Glock. But that one had such a poor sound quality that the Germans decided to melt it down in 1918 for war munitions. And then Peter's Glock, this one, was cast in 1923 to replace it with a far superior um, result. That is quite the choice. This bell is so ugly, we're going to make bullets out of it. Yeah. What does it mean for bells to be rivals? Uh, Well, I mean, I may have been the one person to actually put that little nugget in that footnote there. But Tom, I mean, Tom put them into a March Madness bracket and they were paired opposite each other. We're going to have a, a, a bell off between them and then we're going to see who wins. Well, speaking of rival bells, maybe we should rapidly move to the second one because we're getting our first repeat uh, cathedral in here and that begs questions. Yes, that is true. So we talked about how Borden bells are often referring to the heaviest bell in the collection of bells at the tower or the church, wherever they're housed. But it it can be a single bell, but it can also refer to a couple bells just in the lowest range, the Borden bells, plural. And I actually love this bell for number two. Have a listen. also at Cologne Cathedral in Germany, cast in 1448 by the Heinrich Brodermann and Christian Kloit Bell Foundry, with a pitch of G, a mass of 10,500 kilograms, and a diameter of 2.4 meters, Prediosa was the largest bell in the Western world when cast, although it is small by more modern standards for Bordens. Despite its age, it still retains one of the purest tones out of any Borden, and it continues to ring multiple times a year, without much incident. My own nickname for this bell is Old Faithful, which feels appropriate. If you were to just like look up a list of Borden bells around the world, would this one 
typically show up since it's not mm-hmm. I, I recognize that you said that sometimes you can get a couple in there but mm-hmm. would this one commonly be thought of as a as a board and bell by bell aficionados i think yes i think that if if you dug into the data that this one would just make the cut Again, like I said, you can have more than one Borden Bell in a tower. And I actually mentioned earlier, Notre Dame actually has two. I actually just am always struck by, while I really love the sound of Peter's Glock we just listened to, I actually like this one even more. I'm curious, just between the two, do you have a preference between these two bells, between two and three? Which one do you like better? All the caveats of it's sometimes based on the recording and not uh, mm. just being there. I would agree with you that I like this recording more. The first one at, at Kern is uh, a little muddier, mm-hmm. um, or is this one is uh, sharper? Yeah. Well, the one bell experience that I've had is going to the National Cathedral, and it's a visceral one. Um, those bells, uh, when you're up in the tower, uh, you you took great glee in bringing us up there while some of them were being rung. It has a similar effect on the body as a roller coaster. <laughs> like, <laughs> like when I'm in a wooden roller coaster, like I feel like my dental work is going to pop out uh, on the roller coaster. And I feel like there's a similar fear being in the same room as one of these bells being rung. Mm-hmm. And that the fear isn't present when you're in sort of the ringing chamber, but it isn't absent completely that sort of visceral feeling. Mm. Or you can feel the building swaying when you're in it. Yeah. And listening to these recordings, certainly the, uh, my headphones are nice and I can hear the tones. And when you say that the Pretiosa has a pure tone, uh, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the quality of the recording. I don't have that same visceral experience of the bells. Yeah. It's one of those things I have a hard time putting into words too. So I'll have to think about that a bit. If I were to compare the pure tone of Pretiosa here to number eight that we looked at earlier, the Borden at the Rockefeller Carolyn and the Riverside Church in New York City. David, you said you didn't like that bell very much, probably the least of these. I think comparing those... I would say that that's probably the starkest example of, I would say that the Riverside Church, while it may be a tuned bell, it is not a very pure sound. It's rather nebulous again. Would you agree with that? Uh, I don't, nebulous is not the word I would use, but. What would uh, you say? I'm trying to think of a better word. For me, it's just clashing. I just, I just don't, I think the, the overtones don't fit together. Yeah, I can believe that. Those people who like car engine noises will also talk about like, a Ferrari and a Lamborghini and like a Mustang and they all have different engine noises and the sound of the motor is part of the experience of the car itself. And I listen to a lot of media and I cannot appreciate the difference between car motors. And, and that, you know, we all live in a world dominated by cars. It's not the lack of exposure to car engines that's causing my ignorance. Mm. I do have a lack of exposure to bells, but I'm similarly unable to appreciate the distinction between these. The the Pretiosa, I can certainly hear. It's not just a G. Mm-hmm. There's other tones in there, and that's, I think, something that you admitted to at the, the top of the show that, you know, you're, you're going to hear a lot of stuff when these ring. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that is an example of the nader or train skills that we bring to this because when you were commenting last week on some of those photographs and like pointing out the composition and all that, 
I certainly could tell that some look more vibrant, but to me, I didn't pick up that that meant that post-processing had occurred. Mm-hmm. Good shot, good good moment or something. And and you looked at it like, you know, like, oh no, clearly they, they like did a lot of editing to that photo to make it look like that. Um, and so I think similarly, uh, I am more versed auditorily in this sort of thing. I have more recognition and opinions on this sort of thing that I did for the photography that uh, that you did. But you might admit, hopefully, that this is not just a single G note. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what makes it pure? Ah, now I see what you're getting at. I, for me, it's it's the notes in addition to the G align well, which is not all that helpful of a definition, but they reinforce each other in a pleasant way rather than reinforcing each other in an unpleasant way, which is what I uh, felt that the, the New York City one sounded like. I was just going to say maybe a better word would have been to say this bell resonates well as opposed to it's got a pure tone. I don't know if that sounds a little better there. What does resonating well mean? Well, I I never actually took John Howell's uh, acoustical <laughs> physics class. Yeah, I don't think you should spend a lot of time talking about it in terms of like the physics or necessarily even the acoustics. I think you wrote down it sounds pure out of like an aesthetic experience. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's more what I was going for anyway. Yeah, I think that's sort of what I was trying to get more understanding about. Like, what do you like about this sound more than you like about the Riverside bell sound. So another one was, it's not also just that I think that the overtones match or don't match. Um, Another thing is how forward the sound is, where I think the best example I can think of there is if you're talking more kind of in the front of your mouth, um, where you like a little bit more nasally, a little bit more Mm. forward, um, uh, as compared to like, more in the back of your back of your throat and like <laughs> pulling it way back you know like it's a, it's a very different forward to back sound if we're looking at the two bells in particular i think the pretiosa the second one the one that tom said he liked more it's a more forward sound whereas saint peter's glock is a more kind of back of the mouth sound and there's a place for that but in, in this case I, I enjoyed the more forward well, and, you know, I think building on what Zach said about explaining as, like my sort of ex- aesthetic reaction to the sound and why did I use pure to describe it, I would even say that these different bells evoke different emotions from me. Yeah. I would say that Prediosa from me evokes the emotion, sorrow. This sounds like a sad morning bell to me. Mourning as in kind of like what we said about Tottenglock, mm-hmm. mourning death or mourning like a funeral or something. A bell that's definitely meant for tolling. I have just different reactions, I think, to a lot of these bells. And I probably, to some extent, like certain bells more than others because I identify with those emotions more. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a better explanation for me than an attempt to talk about harmonics. Yeah. No, it's a good point. I'm glad we brought it up. Yeah. Especially because it's not a way that I think about it at all. I get, I listening back, I, I see what you're getting at, but it's uh, that's not how I hear it at all. When you listen to Pretty Osa? I, I just don't have a, a, an emotional connection in the way that you do. Huh, interesting. Okay. I would say that, that for me, I mean, all of these have sounded brash, which is probably not the experience that is intended to be evoked well again it just depends on who you are and again i find that interesting that you find them all brash because i certainly don't 
But also remember that I think you're going to have a different experience for each individual bell, depending on if you're there in person, where you're experiencing that bell. Are you close to the bell? Or are you far away? And when you're particularly at a far distance to bells with the bells just sort of skipping over the cityscape or skipping over the hillsides, you know, far away, it's definitely a much more peaceful sound that I almost could go to sleep to. <laughs> you city boy. Yeah. So I, th- I think the brashness is arguable, but is not necessarily universal for any one of these bells. Certainly. I think that's one of the things that's difficult about discussing this sort of list is because the conceit at the forefront was that it was your personal ranking of them. And, and you know, yeah. it's really difficult in any circumstance for anyone to articulate why they like something or why they don't like something. Right. Well, we should get to the main attraction. No surprise to anyone at all. <laughs> all right. Number one, I swear, as we listen, that the uh, reason I like this bell is not simply because of its location. So have a listen to number one. for the world's best Borden goes to Emmanuel at Notre-Dame de Paris in France. Cast in 1686 by Chapelle, Guillaume, and Moreau, Emmanuel has a beautiful pitch of F-sharp with a mass of 13,271 kilograms and a diameter of 2.62 meters. Notre-Dame de Paris has had many Borden bells throughout its 850-year life. The first Borden was named Marie, cast in the 13th century. Around the year 1400, a second larger Borden named Jacqueline was added, and for the next century, these two Bordens were recast again and again, as the foundry workers iterated upon their craft. By the year 1680, Jacqueline had broken, and the cathedral chapter decided to recast the Borden much larger than before, and to name it Emmanuel, who was actually the chaplain financing the new casting. However, the name quickly became associated with its more religious context. This iteration of Emmanuel was improperly tuned, and thus Notre Dame's largest Borden was once again recast for the last time in 1686, leaving us with the present-day bell we hear today. Emmanuel is my all-time favorite bell, for it rings a strikingly beautiful F-sharp. In fact, by acclamation, Emmanuel is considered by a campanologist to be one of the finest bells in the world. When the French Revolution struck France in the late 18th century, The bells were captured and removed from the towers in 1791 and 1792 by the revolutionaries to be melted down into war materials, including coins and cannons. While all the bells were removed, Emmanuel was somehow spared from the destruction, and it was eventually rehung in the southwestern tower of Notre Dame in 1802 at Napoleon's bidding. And remind me, for a period of a hundred years? Emmanuel shared the tower with bells that you really hated, right? Yeah, well, so, or at least since the mid-19th uh, century up until just 2013, 
Yeah, the only other bells in those bell towers at Notre Dame were very discordant, not at all well cast bells that did not harmonize at all with Emmanuel. In 2013, they finally took initiative where they decided to remove the bells that were hung, which were actually in the North Tower, not the South Tower. But again, when they would ring all the bells at the same time, the two towers are side by side, they're twin towers. And they decided to remove those other bells and then they installed fresh new bells that were all recently cast. And that also included the new Borden, the secondary Borden, that's not as big as Emmanuel, but still a large bell alongside Emmanuel in the South Tower. And I do in particular love the sound of Marie and Emmanuel, just the two Bordens together that when they ring side by side, it's a great sound. Emmanuel is my favorite bell in the world, and it has such a rich, wonderful sound to it whenever it rings. It doesn't ring very often. It only rings on a few large holidays each year, like Christmas and Easter, but it is worth visiting at those times just to hear it. In fact, each of the three times I've been to France were all on Easter, just so I could listen to this bell. And we, that's the Easter when we happened to be able to go to uh, Notre Dame together was uh, the Easter right after that uh, new peal of bells uh, were hung. So we got to hear them very early on. And to great relief, Emmanuel and all the bells of the two West Towers were spared during the Great Fire of 2019. I actually used it in this podcast theme song. This bell in particular is always tolling in the background. However, when I initially tried to time it with the other music I recorded for our theme song, I found that it was a bit out of tune. It didn't quite match the F-sharp key signature that I had composed the music into Sibelius for. So I actually had to manually apply about a 2% Doppler effect to the recording of Emmanuel to get the pitches to sound just right with the recorded music I did. Blasphemy. I know, right? I felt really bad when I did it. I was like, maybe instead of Dopplering the recording of Emmanuel, maybe I should Doppler everything else to make it in tune with Emmanuel. But then I realized that that probably just would not work well at all. I can't wait to hear episode 11's errata where you realize that pitch shifting isn't Dopplering. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what that means. So I'm going to have to uh, look that one up. Pitch shifting? Oh, did you say bit shifting or pitch shifting? Pitch. Oh, I thought you said bit shifting. I'm like, I don't know what bit shifting is. No. It sounds interesting. Pitch. Pitch. You're shifting the pitch. Yeah, that's not the same thing as Dopplering. What's the Doppler effect? The Doppler effect is when you change the pitch of a sound by something that's either speeding up or going farther away, which either compresses or expands the sound waves, right? But that's not what you're doing. Well, it's effectively the same thing. I'm compressing the sound waves or I'm expanding the sound waves. So yeah, it's Doppler. But not by motion. Does it have to be by motion? The Doppler effect is sound agnostic for frequency. It can be for light as well. Yeah, that's true. It's frequency shifting by motion. Does it have to be by motion? I thought it was just simply frequency shifting... An increase or decrease in the frequency of sound, light, or waves as the source and the observer move toward or away from each other. 
All right, so maybe you're technically right. Well done, Zach. So you said you changed the pitch of Emmanuel. You didn't change the pitch of uh, the music? Yeah, I'll play him for the audience uh, at the end here. But again, if you listen to the theme song with Emmanuel that has not been pitch shifted, it does sound just a little bit off. It sounds just a little bit strange. I wasn't entirely certain if that that was partially an issue involving equal temperament, uh, but that's a whole bag of worms that we probably don't have time for today. Well, at least, therefore, our intro music is in keeping with the Treaty of Versailles. Which is? The Treaty of Versailles, one of the ones that ended one of those wars. I don't remember which one. Uh, it was also when we uh, standardized frequencies. Um, because up until then, everyone was making musical instruments that were slightly off of one another. Oh, yeah, I forgot about this. And it was actually in the Treaty of Versailles as a way to bring instrument manufacturing all onto one standard uh, so as to build Europe's common bonds of manufacturing. So, yeah, at least we're not breaking that treaty. I don't know if I would care about the application of the treaty in terms of these bells. I actually have zero emotional attachment to these bells being on pitch or not on pitch. So you have zero emotional attachment to breaking international law. No, that's not that's not what I was getting at. Um, that's, what, that's what I heard. <laughs> when was the Treaty of Versailles? There's about 5,000 of them. Pick one. Which one are you referring to then? I, I think this was... World War One. So if a bell was cast before that agreement, then you're not breaking it if you're out of... Well, I'm, just, I'm just talking about Tom. If he's, if he's changing what F means in our... Uh, F sharp means in our intro, he's using non-standard frequencies. True. Well, at least we can thank the Treaty of Versailles that we all now have perfectly balanced glockenspiel tuning. Yeah. Or tottenglockspiel tuning. Eh, whatever. That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredamedeparis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a nonprofit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day, and happy building.